Mrs. Claus. She's cutie, isn't she? I'm telling you. Hey, it is great to see you. What a great day to be alive in Austin, Texas. Tell your neighbor, good to see you. It's great to be in the house. We are excited about Believe and Christmas coming up. You know, we are also so excited about what's going to happen next weekend in the house. I'm going to be starting a new teaching series next weekend. This weekend, we're wrapping up Faith Works, but we are starting a new series next week called The Rest of the Story. I've been studying and looking at how many times in the Bible God calls us, God offers us rest, rest for your soul, rest for your body. And so we're going to look at rest as a spiritual issue and discipline over the next few weeks. Listen, I am so excited about this. It's great going into the holidays, the holy days, as we think about rest, as we think about vacation, think about taking time off, celebrating the rest of the story. That's going to start next week, and we're excited about that. Excited about today, Halloween in the house. We got gordos, we got sweets, we got candy. It is a good, good day to be in church. Halloween. Now, I know some of you are like, I didn't know you could mention Halloween at church. All the ghosts and ghouls and goblins and all that kind of It may surprise you to know that Halloween began as a Christian celebration. Did you know that? That's a true story. I love you too much to lie to you. Now, what I think is interesting is that Halloween has shown us, I think, have you noticed that the world is kind of separated into two types of people? Some people are costume people. Some people are not costume people. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I've decided I'm going to live and let live. Personally, I am not a costume guy. That's just not my bag. It's not, I'm, I'm just not into it. I don't have any problem with those who are. I've got some really close friends. I mean, dudes, men's men, and they love them a good costume. And I'm just like, I'll see you in November, bruh. That's cool for you. Great. Knock yourself out. But that's just not my vibe. Some people, though, love it. But Halloween actually started as a Christian celebration. For years and years, in the early church, November the 1st was known as All Saints Day. It was a day that was set aside to honor and recognize the saints of the church, those who had been martyred for their faith in Christ. And so All Saints Day was preceded by All Saints Eve the day before All Saints Day. And in the Celtic tradition, it was known as Hallow Evening. Hallow meaning like in the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be thy name. Hallow means holy, set apart. So there was Hallow Evening. And the way the old school Irish and Scotsman said it, it was Hallow Ian. Hallow Ian to you. And so that's where we get Halloween. That's also where we get the tradition of trick-or-treating. Trick-or-treating came out of this tradition. Kids would go door-to-door, and they would perform a trick. They would say a hymn or a a verse or a poem of some sort honoring the dead saints and the martyrs, and in exchange for that trick, they would then receive a treat, some kind of candy or sweet that that house provided. Now, leave it up to the United States of America, us good old Americans. In the 20th century, we morphed that tradition And trick-or-treating became something a little bit different where kids started saying, trick-or-treat, like, give me something good to eat or I will do a trick to you. I will play a prank on you, like egg your house or toilet paper or something like that. Trick or treat. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them 
like you mean it with Halloween and Christmas enthusiasm, trick or treat. <laughs> trick or treat. That is exactly how you and I together today are going to put a bow on and wrap up this teaching series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Faith Works. For the last few weeks, we've been taking a really close look at how our faith in Christ works out in the world. And, and we, we started with the assumption, with the fact of God's amazing grace, that in God's grace, he gives us the faith to follow Christ. And that we, we said, remember, that there's a very important progression that happens. We don't, we don't receive grace because of our works, because of what we do. Rather, we work because we have received grace, because God has given us that grace, because he's chosen to initiate relationship and grace and forgiveness with us, then our work is our response to that grace, that, that everything we do is a, a collaboration, a, a co-laboring with and for God in everything we do. And that's, that's kind of been how we've worked this out, and we've, we've talked about the fact that because of God's grace in your life, God's grace in my life, as a follower of Christ, then there's a calling on your life. God has a calling for you like he has a calling for me, and it's my responsibility to figure out that calling for me, your responsibility to figure out that calling for you, and we've talked a lot about how those different things play out and work out in our lives individually, but today... Trick-or-treat takes us to a universal facet of how our faith in Christ works out in the world. It's universal because every single one of us has to figure out how to process and reprocess this facet of faith. And the facet that I'm talking about is money. You have to figure out, I have to figure out, we all have to handle money. And I know right now you are so excited to be at church. You're just, you don't even know if you can laugh at that or not. That was a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. You know what? I want everybody to do this right now. Everybody just take a deep breath. Breathe out through your nose so you don't breathe coffee on the person in front of you. I want you to understand something. This message, this, this theme throughout Scripture is a gift from God. If you remember, everything that we've talked about throughout this series is an expression of God's grace. The Bible says that it is for freedom you have been set free. And that is particularly true in this particular area. As, as personally and particularly as we have parsed out this process of faith and works, this is something that is universal to all of us. We, we all get to figure out how this works in our lives as a follower of Christ. You know, it might surprise you to know that Jesus talked more about the subject of money and our possessions than any other individual subject. You know, he told parables, a lot of earthly stories to communicate eternal truths. More than two-thirds of his parables, he uses money and possessions and our perspective on our possessions to to illustrate and illuminate the kingdom of God, the purposes of God in our lives and in this world. 
In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Bible records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever delivered. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaks directly to this issue of money as trick-or-treat in our lives spiritually. Look at Matthew chapter 6. These, these are the words of Jesus. Verse 19 through 21, he said, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Jesus, is, he's so crystal clear. He says, treasures on earth, that's a trick. Treasures in heaven, that's a treat. That, that's, a, that's a blessing from the hand of God. And we get to decide how we're going to view our stuff, how our stuff is going to play out in our lives. Is it going to be a trick and a trap, or is it going to be a treat and a blessing? Jesus makes it very clear that these are our options. He goes on to say in Matthew 6, you can't serve both God and wealth. You cannot do both. As in the immortal words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody, but it ain't going to be both of them at the same time. So we have this incredible choice in front of us. Let me, let me show you how this kind of plays out. We're, we're going to do a, a little trick-or-treat chart here. Take a look at the screen. We've got trick and we've got treat. Now, Money becomes a trick in a number of ways in our lives. Number one, money is a trick when we think about money as a source of peace. When we think about money as a source of happiness, take a look at number one there. Happiness, give me happiness. <laughs> now, we all know, of course, on Sunday morning in the confines of a church service, that money doesn't bring us happiness. Amen, preacher. You, you preach the word there. Yes. Yes, I know that. But let's be honest. Sometimes, sometimes we all think a little more money and I'd be a little more happy. Anybody want to raise your hand with your pastor? Don't leave me hanging. Don't act like, oh, I've never struggled with that, pastor, but I'll pray for you. <laughs> We've all been there, and I think that's important, too. Everybody who just had your hand up, raise your hand again, if you would, please. Just, just for a second, keep your hand up. I want everybody to look around the room. Now, if you see somebody's hand who's down, that's okay. They're not struggling with materialism. They're struggling with honesty. <laughs> but I want you to see you are not alone. This is what I know to be true, observationally and just personally. No one, say no one. no one, no one has ever completely mastered the monster of materialism once and for all. Nobody. We all have to make sure that we keep it in check. It will rear its ugly, flame-throwing green head over and over and over again. And happiness, if you think money will make you happy, you can have some fun for a season, to be sure, but it will not make you happy. Instead, when we look at money through the lens of contentment, then it becomes a treat. Then it becomes a blessing. Contentment means that 
You are satisfied with what you have right here, right now. Contentment. The Apostle Paul said, man, I've had plenty and I've had nothing, but I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Contentment is a choice that you make. It's not a feeling. We, we think contentment means, man, I, I feel content. And, and, and let's be honest. We, again, sometimes, sometimes we buy into the lie that there's a number where we would get to content. It, we've all done that. I've done that. You know what I've noticed is I've gotten older and I'm getting older. My number keeps growing. <laughs> I, I'm just being completely honest with you. If I think money's going to make me happy, it's always going to be a little bit more unless I choose contentment. To choose contentment means that you, you decide that what God has entrusted to you right now, you trust is enough. What God has entrusted to you right now, what you have in this moment, is enough to be and to do everything he's calling you to be and to do. That's contentment. And it's saying, God, I trust you. I trust you more than I trust my feelings. I trust you more than I trust what's going on. And I will choose to be content. Another trick is when we choose to look at money for peace, for peace. Again, man, it's so easy to think, if I could just reach this level of income or if I just had this amount in the bank, I could relax. I would be peaceful. I've been there and I've done that. I've gotten the T-shirt. It doesn't work. You think peace. If I may quote the words of a great theologian, more money, more problems. <laughs> you, just, you just have more to manage. You have more to think about. It's not going to bring you peace in, in your soul. A third trick of money is when we make it our focus. When we make money our focus, and that's our why. That's why we get up and go in the morning. When it becomes our focus, it, it's, it's the reason we do what we do. It becomes... Money is not a big enough why. Now, as I said, we all have to manage money. We all have to figure out what our relationship and perspective and mindset about money is going to be. But if it is the focus of why we do what we do, it will always be a trick and a trap. Instead, look at money through the lens of fuel. Look at money as, as fuel to the fire of what God's calling you to do. Money, it, money is a fueling agent. That's why it doesn't bring peace. If we're anxious, money fuels our anxiety. We, we use money as a distraction, something to keep going, buy another trinket, another toy, take another trip, get another car. But if our peace is found in Christ, then it becomes fuel to that. It, it becomes fuel for, for peace, it becomes fuel for our purpose. It becomes fuel for our lives. It, it becomes fuel. See, money, money's just a tool, which I know rhymes with fuel, but go with me on this one. It's just a tool, kind of like fire is a tool. Fire can, can warm you on, on a cold winter morning like today. Brrr, down in the 40s. 
or fire can burn your house down. If you look at money as fuel to your calling, fuel to what God wants to do in your life and through your life, man, that, that's, where the, that's where the good stuff, that's where it becomes a treat. That's where it becomes a blessing. And, and you start to understand that God has blessed you with whatever level of financial, material wealth you have, he's blessed you with that to be fuel, to be a blessing to other people. Or, if it's your focus, it'll absolutely burn your house down. The ditches are littered with squillionaires who never figured out the difference between a focus and a fuel, who never figured out that this is only something to be used for the glory of God and the enjoyment of his people. It's fuel. One last thing, trick of money. When we think that money is going to bring us rest, when we think, man, if I make a certain amount of money, then I can just chillax. I can retire. I had a guy ask me recently, financial advisor, he said, Mac, what is the number that you would need to live on in retirement? It's a good question, isn't it? Some of you know that number. Some of you like thinking about it a lot. Some of you are like, I don't know. A billion? $1,000. I mean, you, you may not know. But I, I, I turned it back on this guy. He's a, he's a good guy. We weren't having an argument at all, but I said, that's, that's not a question I think about. And, and I'll tell you why. You cannot name a single disciple of Jesus who walked with Christ, who retired, who, who just quit. Peter did not just cash out his 401k from Disciples R Us and go to Thessalonica to play golf. He didn't do that. Man, they ran through the tape. They finished strong. Now, what you do probably ought to shift and change as you mature, as you raise up other people, as you bless other people. You, but but you're, you're never done with your calling from God. When, when do you stop? trying to glorify God? When do you stop caring about advancing the purposes in the kingdom of God in this world? We don't retire. Now, if you get to play more golf than I do, great. I hope you're better than I am. But we don't retire. We don't rest. Now, that's, that's when money becomes a trick and a trap. I, I've seen so many people. I, I've got friends who live in different cities and I've seen this happen over and over again. People who hit a home run financially, sold a business, sold whatever the case might have been, and maybe let's say, they're, let's say they're mid to late 40s, early 50s, really young people. Bought a house here, bought a house there. Started working on the golf game. And with 18 months, every single one of them is bored and miserable. I've never seen that game plan work. 
And, and I, don't, I don't, listen, and I understand it. I get it. I think we all have days when we think, can I just like leave? That happens. But you're never done. There is always something that God wants to do in you and through you for his purposes in this world. So that's why we, instead of looking at money as an opportunity for rest, we look at it as a responsibility. We look at money through the lens of responsibility, and that's when it becomes a treat again. Whenever what God, whenever or whatever God has entrusted to us, when we see it in our hands as a responsibility, then we understand God wants to do something with this. God, God, wants, God wants me to collaborate and co-labor with him to, to make this make a difference in this world. That's, that's the responsibility. But that's, that's also the fun part. You get to collaborate. I get to collaborate with God on his purposes, on his agenda in this world. It's an amazing, amazing blessing, treat, if you will. Now, I want to show you something. Let's take a look at this list here. Look at the list of tricks. Happiness, peace, focus, and rest. By the way, nothing wrong with any of those things by themselves. But I want you to notice, if you trust anything money, possessions, or, or by the way, anyone other than God for your happiness, for your peace, for your focus or, or your purpose, or your rest, then what you have done is you have built an idol. Anything or anyone other than God that we go to for happiness, for peace, for focus or for rest, that's an idol. It's an idol. You know, we, we read Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no graven images, no idols in your lives. In 21st century Western world, we think, how, how primitive to worship an idol. <laughs> They're so primitive. We still do the same thing. We just don't carve them ourselves. Those are idols. And the thing about idols is that idols are always liars. Idols are always liars. They always promise so, so much and deliver so, so little. And to me, that's really helpful. Like if you start to understand the, the objectives and the tactics and the strategies of the enemy... And then you're better prepared to defend yourself. Instead of giving in, instead of settling for an idol, you look at an idol and you go, you're a liar. Think about when you get lied to. Like if you're a parent. If you're a parent and, and your children, you know, your little bundles of joy you brought home from the hospital, that you nurture them, you fed them, you've cleaned them, you keep them alive, and somewhere along ages two, three, or four years old, somewhere along the way, they lie to you for the first time. How many of you are parents? You, you know the pain I'm talking about. But it's not just pain, it's complete dismay. Like you're going, I 
feed you all the time. And you're lying to me? I'm smarter than you are. Or at least I know more at this point. And you're lying to me? I think, I think we ought to treat idols the same way we treat people who lie to us. Don't let them off the hook. Don't, don't, don't buy the lie. Idols never, ever work. They don't work. The only one who will meet our need for happiness, for peace, for focus, and for rest is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is who he is and this is what he does. So anything else, anyone else is an idol and they're lying to us. They're lying to us. So what do we do? How do we, how do we make this choice so that as an expression of our faith, as our faith in Christ is working itself out in the world, how do, how do we make money a treat rather than a trick? I'm so glad you asked. Three things I want you to keep in mind. Three things that I think we have to keep coming back to whenever the monster of materialism rears its ugly head. Number one, settle the issue of ownership. Settle the issue of ownership. Psalm chapter 24, verse one, puts a really fine point on this. It's elsewhere in the Bible, but it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Everything is God's. He is the owner, if you will, and I will. That, that's, just, that's just how it is. Every dime that you have, every vehicle you drive, every stitch that you wear is God's. It's God's. This morning, I, I came into the service, got here early, and I walked in, and I'm 55 years old. I, I, was, I wasn't cool when I was 20. I know I'm not going to be cool ever in my life. I, I've given, that ship has sailed. But for about a split second, I felt cool this morning. I walked in, and our bass player, Bob Kennedy, great guy, by the way, committed Christian, great husband, great dad. Bob was wearing the same jacket I'm wearing. <laughs> now, listen, I don't care who you are. If you're wearing the same clothes the bass player's wearing, you're cool. Bob, I'm wearing that. I think it's, I didn't, I didn't look in his label. We didn't get that close. But I was like, whoa. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, I don't really like that jacket. It's just, it's not really working for me. I know you went with black maybe to try to be a little slimming. That's not working either. That's okay. It's not my jacket. It's God's. Take it up with him. <laughs> So my, my point is ownership, everything. Say everything. everything. Everything is God's. Do you understand how liberating that is, how freeing? You don't have to white-knuckle your stuff anymore because it ain't yours. If you just, just do this, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, the freedom that that brings. Now, you may act like it's yours. Probably right now, some of you are kind of 
you know, sitting there with your arms crossed, silently thinking, I'm not buying this. It's mine. Back off. And I appreciate you not saying that out loud. And, and that's, that's your choice. But the truth, the reality is, it's God's. You can act like it or not. If you want money to not be a trick and be a treat in your life, settle the issue of ownership. Settle the issue. Number two, commit to the practice of stewardship. Commit to the practice of stewardship. One of the things that I think a lot of people wrestle with coming out of ownership is, is this fact that most of us, we work hard. We work hard and we receive a paycheck and we need the paycheck for food and clothing and shelter and, and whatever else. But when you understand that it's God's, that means that whatever he's put in your hand, whatever he's put in my hand, is for us to steward. It's for us to, to manage on his behalf. And when you start looking at it that way, you, you start to understand, okay, there's no wasted movement. There's no wasted money in God's economy. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see myself as a money manager of God's stuff. The Bible says this, remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful. Some translations say the ability to earn wealth. In order to fulfill the covenant, he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is preparing the nation of Israel for when they will enter the promised land. And he says, now listen to me. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get into the land of milk and honey. You've been in the wilderness for 40 years, but you will enter the land of milk and honey. And when you get there, you're going to be blown away by the crops you can raise. You are going to be blown away by the blessings that I will rain down on your tiny little human heads. And when you get there, remember me, God says. Don't forget when you're successful, when, when your crops produce, don't forget the Lord. And practice stewardship. Manage what he has entrusted to you. Understand that it's a gift from him. And steward it. The church where I grew up, we, we had a thing every single year. I'll, I'll never forget this. We did a thing called Stewardship Sunday. And, and a lot of churches do this. It's a, it can be a great thing. We don't practice it here, but it, it can be a great thing. But I'll never, I remember Stewardship Sunday. There was always this Sunday where there was a sermon kind of like this one. And then at the end of this sermon, every household in the church filled out a pledge card of what they were going to give for the next year. And so if you'll look underneath your chairs right now, there's a pledge. I'm just kidding, not really. Some of you go, I don't have a pen. No, we, we don't do that here. Again, I'm not, I'm, there's nothing wrong with it, but it was just something that focused us as a church family every year, reminding us that, that everything that we do financially is a stewardship issue. It's a management issue. One more thing. One more thing. Engage in the experience of worship. Engage in the experience of worship. 
This is the tithe. The tithe is a biblical discipline, a biblical practice that God calls followers of Christ to. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. If you're a Christian with a pulse, this applies to you. The tithe is 10%. If God blesses you with $100 this year, then $10 goes to the place that you worship. If it's here, great. If it's another church in another city, that's great. But that's the tithe. This is what God says in Malachi chapter 3. And by the way, you may just want to make a note. Jesus endorsed the tithe. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus in the new covenant endorsed the tithe. Here's what it says in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Treat. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Bring all the tithe. Bring the tithe. Now, part of the genius of the tithe is that it, unites the family of faith. We're all in this together. You see, when you tithe, when Julie and I tithe, then we move from being consumers and just taking to being contributors and participating. We're contributors and not just consumers. We just take it in, 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 take it in. Or are we contributors? Are we a part of the family of faith? Your tithe, same weight as my tithe. My tithe is the same weight as your tithe. And I just need you to understand this. As your pastor, please don't miss this. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 22 months ago, when they shut church down, we had no idea what to expect. And you were faithful. You, the church family of Lake Hills Church, brought the tithe, even when we weren't gathering and meeting. And I cannot describe to you the encouragement, the gratitude, the appreciation, the admiration that I have for you, this family of faith. You have done it in spades. Now, we're healthy financially. I, I, I wouldn't say that we're looking for islands to buy somewhere for a retreat center. But we're healthy because you tithe. Because you chose to be a contributor and not just a consumer. And I just, I just want to tell you thank you. It means more to me than I can even describe. You will be in heaven before you understand how grateful I am for being that kind of church. Trick or treat. Trick or treat. Trap or blessing. I think you could expand this 
to really be the entire series. Because if you think about the fact of God's grace, where we started this journey, it is by grace that we're saved through faith so that no one can boast, but we understand it is Christ. It's Jesus. It's not what we do. It's what he's done in and through the cross. Everything that we do is a response to that. John Bounds was a gentleman who, for most of his adult life, lived in Dallas. My mom and dad were very, very close friends of John and his wife, Elaine, when I was born. I, I was born, their daughter, Kara, was born six months later, and seven years after that, they had a son named Colin. But I've never known a day of life without John Bounds being in my life. Mr. Bounds passed away last week, 82 years old, huge Aggie. We loved him anyway. Huge quail hunter. I got to speak at his funeral. I had the privilege. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't preach the sermon. I got to do the eulogy. Eulogy just means a good word to be well spoken of. And in the case of John Bounds, that's redundant. I just kept coming back over and over again to the fact that he was a good, that, I'm sorry, he is a good man. He's a good man. And I started asking, why, why does he strike me that way? Why, why is that my memory of him? Because when our, when our parents divorced, my dad left, John, John was there for my brothers and me and for my mom in, in huge ways, small ways. And I never remember John Bounds ever preaching to me. I knew he was a committed Christian. And I thought about the fact that John Mr. Bounds gave my brothers and me hope. He gave us hope and he gave us a vision of what was possible in the life of a man who was faithful. He was faithful to Christ. When Mr. Blackman, when Mr. Bounds would say the blessing before a meal, it was never mechanical. It was never a routine. He was asking the favor of a friend. He, you, you could tell that he, he knew Jesus and he loved him and he liked him. He was faithful to the Lord. He was faithful to his wife for 56 years. Faithful to his children. Helped put people through college who never would have gone. Now he sent him to A&M, but he helped. 
And I kept coming back to this idea of faithful. Faithful. I want to be more like John Bounds. To be faithful. To to stay the course of my calling as a follower of Christ, as a husband, a dad, pastor. Faithful. Because faith works. Faith works. If you're here today or you're watching online and you've never stepped into that faith in Christ, we would love to give you the opportunity to do that right now. To just pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment. And yeah, it's a prayer of surrender. Submitting to the only one who will never take advantage of your submission or your surrender. I want to ask everyone, if you will, bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, then we invite you to pray. Just talk to God where you are right now. Silently say something like this. Just from your heart to God, say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And in this moment, I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again for me. And so I confess my sin to you. I receive your grace, your forgiveness. And in response, I will follow you from this moment forward. You are my Lord. And I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. ask you to remain with your heads bowed for just a moment, a sacred moment. If that was your prayer, then this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church family, we want to help with the moments that follow. So if you would, maybe you're online, maybe you're here in the room, I want to ask you, if you will, make a point just to let us know. If you're here on campus today, before you get to the Gordo's donut food truck outside, just stop and let somebody know at the hub, today's my day. It'll take less than a minute, but it's a crucial minute to begin a, a process that proceeds at whatever pace works for you just so we can help with what's next at the beginning of this faith journey. If you're online, there's a place for you to indicate on the screen also so we can help in any way. 
Second thing I want to ask of you is, if that was your prayer and you began that faith journey today, would you just quietly raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for just a moment. Your hand in the air is a spiritual statement declaring the choice that you just made to follow Christ. And so as a church, we, we celebrate that. We note that. We honor that. And we kind of have a family tradition around here. If you want to go ahead and put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.